for all Bros can suck my balls Fuck your reply guys Please don't fuck your reply guys Just listen to reply guys Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys The leftist feminist comedy podcast for the rest of us I am Kate Willett And I'm Julia Clare Wow, a big week of news. Another one. They just won't stop. Do you think that things will slow down after the Democratic primary? Probably not. You know what? I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we have some big news of our own, some good news. We're going to be in the Brooklyn Podcast Festival. Woo! Um, I'm very excited. Yeah, so we have a show at Union Hall on January 25th, so please get tickets for that. We would really love to meet you in person. Yeah. And also, we've noticed that a lot of you this week have been writing us reviews and tweeting about us, and I can't tell you how much we appreciate it that. It really means so much. This is a pretty new podcast. We are in our, I think, fifth month now, and we are really trying to get the word out that, uh, you know what? It's not all brochalists out here. Ladies can do socialism, too. Yes. <laughs> socialism but for girls but for girls yeah oh Um, oh man what a week you know when i was (laughs) i was thinking about this today uh i i did my most uh brochalist move so far i think today uh which is that i retweeted a video of hillary clinton and she was talking on howard stern she was making fun of bernie sanders free college proposal uh, and she called it uh, free chocolate milk for everybody. And then her and Howard Stern laughed at it together. I mean, these people are both multimillionaires. Millionaires but, you many know, times over. You know, I mean, look, I never got fully on board with the Hillary Clinton hate. I never did. But part of me at this point now thinks perhaps all the misogyny that I saw uh, other people ex- exhibiting blinded me to... How truly out of touch, I yeah. mean, out of touch would be like the most generous reading, but it's like, I don't know. I don't think that uh, it's a very good idea for famous Democrats to be um, doing media appearances where they uh, make fun of one, someone who's currently running for president um, three years after 2016 and two, like the idea of like ridiculing public free college, free college and uh health for everyone as free chocolate milk like it's some like trivial fun thing instead of like shit that people really need to live i mean it's just one can say it's not a good look one could say yeah, yeah. it's i mean you said it all very out of touch i don't even like she says so many predictable things now in this vein there's nothing that surprises me about her anymore and she was someone obviously you know i voted for her in 2016 but it's uh i just i i like can't even expend any energy thinking about hillary clinton anymore it's like john Kerry endorsing joe biden like i don't care he it's very similar it's like yeah the two of them represent the like centrist wing of the democratic party and they lost and now they're continuing to do centrism but yeah like obviously uh bernie and warren are proposing for free public college and it's been a real it's really put a uh put a b in a lot of bonnets in the uh in the centrist corporate democrat world (laughs) You know, I understand why corporate Democrats 
don't support things like free public college or free healthcare. Like I get why they don't. I mean, the, their source of funding for their campaigns depends upon them having these opinions. But there's nothing sadder to me than like people online or even in real life who like defend the idea like no we can't have these things like we just can't you know and it's- i think that's just like a lot of internalized messaging that people you know if you would ask me like eight years ago if i thought medicare for all was a viable option i would have said no because of all of the like internalized sure messaging yeah uh supporting that and hopefully we can just convince them that it's, I mean, calling it chocolate milk is truly bonkers. Yeah. <laughs> can't. Um, but yeah, we, we Hillary, you got to stop. I don't know. Um, the big, to me, the big story of the week is that um, Senator Kamala Harris of California uh, ended her presidential campaign um, and she cited financing for her campaign as the... Um, the main reason why she's no longer politically viable. And there's, you know, a lot of people who say that like the entrance of Michael Bloomberg and Tom Steyer kind of directly pushed her out. I don't, Kamala's never been my choice. I don't agree with, I don't agree with her on much politically. I think she is her opposition to universalist programs like, Medicare for all and free public college is really confusing to me. And I also just think that her campaign was, it was clearly like there were warring factions within her comp- campaign who couldn't decide how to run the campaign. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I, I actually have a lot of really conflicted feelings about this. Like I do think that Kamala Harris for sure encountered sexism and racism, but I also think that, a lot of the reason that she's not in the race anymore is because her campaign was like really dumb. Like making Trump on Twitter such a central issue, getting Trump off Twitter. People don't fucking care about that. I mean, like maybe a little bit, but not very much, you know? And like that proposal uh for like debt forgiveness um up to twenty thousand dollars if you were a pell grant recipient uh and you had a successful small business in a disadvantaged neighborhood for three years that's like a parody of neoliberalism that's like what the onion would write to try to explain what a neoliberal policy is yeah i um you know obviously this this podcast does have a lot to do with the online discourse i I absolutely agree that Kamala Harris, ultimately Kamala Harris's poor strategy and the policy proposals that she did have and her just kind of, I mean, talk about somebody who she literally in one debate said that she would abolish private insurance and then immediately said, I didn't understand the question. I didn't actually mean that. Yeah, it was. I. I but could, it's like, but to me, she is very comparable to a Pete, to a Pete Buttigieg ideologically and i do think that it's kind of hard like i did see i saw one take from a a prominent uh online leftist who said you know it gives me a lot of hope that um that kamala's record on criminal justice uh was the reason why her campaign failed or something to that effect and it's like no it wasn't because if people really actually did care about um, about that, then Joe Biden wouldn't be polling in first in so many places. I think I kind of split the difference because 
here's the thing. I think that the reason that Biden is where he is and that he's uh, in the, that he's doing so, I was going to say so well, but not really. I mean, there's not more than like a quarter of Democratic primary voters, who, which is a small number of people anyway, who want to vote for him, you know, mm-hmm. so he's not doing that well. But the people who are supporting him are old. Same with Pete Buttigieg. And uh, I think that for Kamala, like it definitely is true that a lot of the reason that she didn't get more traction among young people is because of her record on criminal justice so i kind of think there's two groups there's like young people who do for the most part care about criminal justice reform they're like a no on kamala uh largely for that reason but then there's also certainly a segment of the electorate which does not give a shit and i think that biden has a lock on those people oh sure i mean certainly i'm just talking about the people who like you know obviously kamala is a cop is like a common refrain on on twitter and i just think that like i would love to see pete Buttigieg as a cop i would love to see joe biden as a cop (laughs) see i actually have seen i actually have seen pete and biden both get a lot of criticism for their criminal justice records um it's just that it's coming from young people and from people on the left and that's not who their who their bases are i i cannot say that i have seen anything close to and i'm counting this by saying that kamala's is a cop is a cop and you know the criticism is earned no but i i can honestly say that i have not seen even a fraction of what she got and also it's like you know people who are saying that like kamala is trying to present as a progressive and she's not totally agree um again can also be stated of other men in the race i remain shocked that people have not been going harder after even though he's polling so poorly People did not go harder after Andrew Yang for trying to masquerade as a faux progressive. Like, obviously, Kamala, Kamala's campaign uh, fizzled for a number of reasons. It really frustrates me when I see some leftist women just ignoring sexism when it suits them um, because it it doesn't help us. It's like, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. We can acknowledge that sexism plays a role in this and also advocate for socialism. See, I, I, I definitely think that sexism plays a role in how Kamala is treated. I think that sexism and racism were the reasons that she was not like Pete Buttigieg is anointed by the establishment and, uh, lavished with praise by the media. You know, I mean, I, the, the kind of standard idea that like a white dude is the most electable, like that's where I see the sexism really, the sexism and the racism really, really playing out. I, I really don't think that the people who were strongly opposed to her for, uh, reasons of her record on criminal justice. I mean, it's, it's pretty atrocious and that's, that's not really how I see it playing out. I mean, totally agree. I just, again, I just, obviously I see left criticisms of Buttigieg and Biden all the time, of course, but it's just the particular refrain about her. I do wish was, was leveled equally between some of the equally as egregious male candidates and now we have Spe- so for you that would be specifically calling like pete Buttigieg yeah a i mean well no specifically obviously pete got because it was so um blatant pete got a lot of um 
got a lot of criticism for his Douglas plan. And, um, but I think that, you know, the way that he's worked with the South Bend police department needs to be under scrutiny much more. Um, obviously like Joe Biden is the architect of one of the architects of the crime bill. Yeah. <laughs> like, no, And I, I definitely agree with you. I just think that their particular supporters like just don't. No, 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 no. I, I don't think that they do, but that's not who we're, t- we're t- like the criticism yeah. is what comes from the left. Like, oh, no. Yeah, I understand. I mean, it's like you see all the teens like calling him like Mayo Pete and shit. <laughs> I mean, like I just God bless the teens. Yeah. God it's, bless and keep it, the it's teens. It's complicated. Like you can never really, you can never really say, uh what's one thing or another and like obviously at the top of the show we're just talking about hillary clinton like obviously some of the criticism of her was misogynistic there's a lot of things that she did that like you know many other uh white guys have also done and supported Mm -hmm. and you know people were harder on it but you know it's also like I, I, I don't know. I also think that sometimes Look, all I'm just all I'm saying is that Martha Stewart should have been allowed to yeah. do insider trading. <laughs> yeah. But there's also this there's also this way that very cynically like um, liberals will say will dismiss uh, like real substantive criticism of the way that someone like Kamala or someone like Pete, you know, has hurt vulnerable groups of people and and say that people are just being you know sexist or racist or homophobic and and it's in this way that's like very very cynical totally no i completely agree and there are definitely people who co-opt that language for nefarious ends i don't disagree with that at all my issue is i just don't like seeing certain people on you know my my brothers and bernie my my folks on the left i don't like seeing them just completely deny the existence of like we can again kamala is a cop yeah but- let's talk just for a second just about some of the very uh cop things that she's done <laughs> so we give that uh so we give that her, we give that a fair we give shake. kamala her due as yeah. we, we send her out to see uh yeah so she uh advocated um she advocated uh jailing parents for having truant children um love that yeah she uh truant meaning kids who skip school kids who skip school right um she uh opposed a bill requiring um her office her office as ag to investigate uh police officers shooting people um she refused to support uh uses of body cameras which i know is a a complicated issue Mm -hmm. as as body cams don't really necessarily prevent any police shooting but yeah <laughs> i mean uh, no i mean yeah it's just yeah. it's uh, her record on on criminal justice is yeah. uh it's no good folks <laughs> she she laughed um when a reporter asked her if she would support uh the legalization of marijuana um while uh, admitting that she had smoked weed herself um, oh yeah she she went on the breakfast yeah. club and was like I have Jamaican relatives. Of yeah. course, of course I've smoked. Yeah. She, uh, <laughs> supported cash bail, which means that, you know, you can't like that people who, whether they've committed crimes or not, like people are in jail because they can't buy their way out of it. You know, yeah. and this is people who haven't been convicted. Cash I mean, ca- really cash bail is like truly so immoral yeah, and, and it's so backwards. Yeah. And she also referred to herself as a top cop, you know? So I think, I do think that my favorite tweet I saw was when she announced just someone tweeted officer down. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was, so I, I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, she was, 
I, I guess the difference between like Pete and Biden is that like she was running on her prosecutorial record being like an asset like because she was going to prosecute Trump and like we have this like corrupt criminal in the White House and like she was there to prosecute him you know I'll say this she is extremely effective in the um in the Senate judiciary hearings absolutely I I certainly don't want her to be president and I never have um I, I don't know if I uh I agree that leftists in particular haven't been as hard on Pete but just in case let's be hard on him right now let's do it let's let's no, no, no. jump I in mean, no leftists are being hard on Pete absolutely but now I I honestly I've seen so much of it in the last week and I think it's be- I think it's largely because Kamala's Kamala's gone so, um to, yeah I mean look You'll never hear a moment of resistance for me that Pete Buttigieg is not a man who should be <laughs> dragged full time. So this week, uh, this week we wanted to kind of drag Pete from another angle. Yeah, Kate. Kate um, was like, "Should we do an episode of Drag His Ass about Pete?" I'm like, "That is every single week." This is what the, the podcast could be called: Drag His Ass, Pete Buttigieg. Pete Buttigieg. So uh, this week we want to talk a little bit about a company that Pete worked for, which is the only experience that he's the only work experience that he's ever had outside of the military the military or being the mayor of South Bend and let's talk a little bit about McKinsey there was a big article on McKinsey which came out in the New York Times and ProPublica um, which we're going to talk about in just a moment but I wanted to before we open this article I want to uh, give a, a little shout out to some other things that McKinsey has done oh yeah we I mean well we, um, for those of you who listened we we talked on the one of our episodes with Gabe Gonzalez we talked about McKinsey's role in the uh, the economic crisis in Puerto Rico. Yep. Um, but Kate, go on. All right. So um, here is uh, just some highlights. McKinsey's done a lot of terrible things, but uh, these are just oh, the hits. Look, these are the hits. Um, so they advised uh, Enron on their accounting practices. Heard of them? Okay. Yeah, heard of uh, some Enron accounting practices. Uh, they identified for for the they worked for the uh, Saudi Arabian government, who you may love, know, who you may know from uh, dismembering Jamal Khashoggi um, and to, doing nine yeah, eleven uh, to. <laughs> to uh identify uh saudi dissidents on twitter and such and then handed that list over to the saudi arabian government so that they could crack down on them um they have uh supported other authoritarian regimes um in china they held a retreat uh a like a fancy fancy company retreat next to a concentration camp mm-hmm. for uh, Uyghurs who are Chinese Muslims uh, where they were being detained for no other reason other than that they were Uyghurs. Uh, they advised opioid makers had a uh, turbocharged sales of <laughs> OxyContin, who you may know from the opioid crisis. Um, they played a, a, they played a significant role in the 2008 financial crisis uh, by promoting uh mortgage-backed securities um and encouraging banks to uh fund their balance sheets with debt um they uh they're one of their most uh famous scandals recently was that they worked with a really corrupt family in south africa uh to take money from the public utility company and launder it back to that company um and they it was like a profiteering scandal yeah and they they got in really big trouble with the south african government you know i mean and then there's all kinds of things which are like 
you know, not the highlights, but just, uh, just, you know, consulting a lot of the time is just advising companies to lay off workers, um, to pay people less, to increase executive compensation. I mean, it is just the most uh, amoral, like money above all things industry. And McKinsey is kind of like the the top cop of that. Yeah. But uh, McKinsey, that man, that's, that has a ring to it. McKinsey yeah. is the top cop. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, they, but this week they were in the news because um, in, in light of uh, Pete Buttigieg's run for president, I think uh, partially um, there's been some uh, investigation into their, work with ice you want to give us some highlights there i would love to so um mckinsey has done about 20 million dollars of contracting work with ice um and they signed the contracts during the obama administration but a big part of what mckinsey does is um as kate mentioned advising different organizations how to quote-unquote save money by cutting costs and some of the recommendations that McKinsey has been making, and they ended their contract with ICE in July, but then immediately signed a new contract with Customs and Border Patrol. Um, so some of the recommendations that they made were so odious that they even made the ICE agents uncomfortable. Uh, can you, I mean, can you imagine how bad it would have to be to be like, look, you know, I, look, I signed up for a job at ICE because I am passionate <laughs> about torturing immigrants and asylum seekers, but you know, even I have my limits. Yeah. So they proposed cuts in spending on food and medical care. And supervision of detainees uh, of migrants. This is this is a quote from from the New York Times article. Uh, the consulting team became so driven to save money. People involved in the project say that consultants sometimes ignored and even complained to agency uh, managers about ICE workers who said that McKinsey's cost-cutting proposals risk jeopardizing the health and safety of migrants. So they're like complaining that some of the ICE agents were pushing back and saying, "Won't this be?" And you know. People are already being tortured in absolutely already in uh, cages and freezers and no blankets and no food and no toothbrushes and no medicine when they're sick. And I mean, just I mean, like the level of torture that's going on right now is it's a concentration camp. Yeah. Um, So some of their most extreme uh, recommendations for these cuts were not uh, incorporated into the new contracts. But uh, they said internal uh, project emails point to cutbacks in guard staffing as the source of most cost savings. And they basically are trying to most of McKinsey's recommendations were like cutting the standards of living in these detention facilities while also trying to hire as many new guards as possible, um, which is kind of a direct I mean, it's directly in line with what President Trump recommended. He wanted 10,000 new agents at the border. Yeah, I mean, although, yes, that's true. But it's also, I think, important to note that um, these uh, that McKinsey started its work with ICE during, during the, the Obama, Obama administration. administration. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, which is why it's frustrating to me sometimes that I think people who are really like, you know, want to support the queen of shade nancy pelosi and stuff can be reticent to acknowledge how bad corporate democrats are on this issue as well Mm -hmm. and you know how active 
Democrats have really been in also uh, torturing and uh, deporting people. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is one of those one of the innumerable issues in American politics where the right has set the talking points. A lot of these budget bills um, kind of get put under the umbrella of like border security. Basically, a lot of more centrist Democrats have like taken the bait of Republican talking points in a way that hopefully we can just put a stop to by electing people who know what's what (laughs) yeah i mean and the reason that this came up today um is uh you know pete works for mckinsey for three years he refuses to release um his the details of his work there i think he's released a little bit of a summary summary but he says he didn't want to break his nda like bitch yeah. Stormy Daniels broke her NDA. Yeah, and uh, you know Elizabeth Warren has uh, called him out on that. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, Pete is a fucking sleaze bag, and you really have to be an amoral piece of trash to work for a company like McKinsey. I mean, maybe not necessarily, because it's like I get that there are people that just have to do things for money, and yeah, we're all trying to exist under capitalism. But you know, Pete was uh, a Rhodes Scholar. He was a graduate of Oxford. Like, he really had... He could have done done anything. anything in the world, and this is what he does. And he also goes on to speak very highly of his time at McKinsey um, and says that, you know, it's where he learned his uh, methodology. I mean, there... Yeah, there are so many places there in which if it gives you a paycheck, like, I get it uh, to a certain degree... McKinsey is uniquely uh, situated in like, this is what they do. They try to maximize profits for really nefarious ends and they do it by kind of the most draconian measures possible. Yeah, I mean, worst, you know, best case scenario is Pete uh, spent his time advocating layoffs worst case scenario he uh, advised authoritarian regimes about who they should torture so we'll never know we'll never, we'll never know uh it's all you know and and pete you know if you're hearing this and you think our assessments are unfair just go ahead and release the details of what you did at mckinsey and if we're wrong we will also it's like issue a retraction on our first reply guys retraction and you know we'd be happy to do it uh if if the word came from from pete himself uh but here's the thing i i think that now that the field is getting narrower in the democratic uh presidential primary um, there are definitely in the past week has been, or the past few weeks has been, um, kind of a magnification of certain aspects of the Buttigieg campaign. And I recently learned that one of his, uh, one of his, his top people working for his campaign has like worked for Republicans, yeah, like, camp- like worked on Republican campaigns. Yeah. Liz Smith. Yeah. Um, she's anyway she's she's Pete Buttigieg's uh senior comms advisor and she has this video where she speaks like very proudly about (laughs) just things that you shouldn't be proud of uh it she strikes me as someone who got into politics in the way that a lot of people do honestly which is like the team sport aspect of it and the thing is she wasn't even on the right team sometimes (laughs) 
times. Yeah. I yeah, just, and Pete uh, is like the perfect example of that kind of like weaponization of woke language uh, to um, to nefarious ends. Like he, you know, he said that he thinks that uh, black people are homophobic and that that's why he doesn't have more black support no dude it's because you fired the black yeah (gasps) no dude it's because you fired the black police chief it's because your policies are neoliberal trash that don't do anything to help people you fucking faked black endorsements you uh you did not uh take action to prosecute a police shooting you displaced many of your black and brown constituents through mm-hmm. mckinsey style uh data driven gentrification <laughs> measures i'm no it's so the new york times has been doing uh the, the their podcast the daily has been doing this series on the candidates and each candidate gets to come on and you know uh be interviewed by michael barbaro and then uh alex burns who um, is the political reporter for the Times uh, kind of peppers in some background information on them? And so far, the two people they, that they have had on have been Pete Buttigieg, and uh, this week was Bernie Sanders. Um, and I have to say, they focus primarily in Pete's episode about the fact that he is gay and like kind of his journey with coming out. And I, I think that that is when he is at his most human. Um, and I can understand why people find that because it is a very, it's like obviously very sad that he felt that he couldn't, that he couldn't come out, but they talked almost, they did not talk at all about his policy. And it's because they've only had two so far. It's in stark contrast with, uh, Bernie Sanders, who they focused a lot about his, um, mayoral tenure in Burlington, Vermont in the eighties. And specifically how that has always been about improving people's quality of life, having a basic standard of quality of life, because this is the wealthiest country in the world and we should, um, and we can. And I just think that like, and I, I know that I'm biased, but it's like Bernie came off looking significantly better because even Michael Barbaro asked Pete Buttigieg, like, it seems like you've been orchestrating a political biography for yourself for your whole life. One of the biggest criticisms of Hillary Clinton that I heard over and over again was that she was so calculated. And to me, there is no one who exemplifies this trend more than him. No. And I don't, and he didn't even entirely deny it. He was like, this is the job that I want. And this is what I've been doing to prepare for it. And I was like, I don't know, man, there are better ways to do that than working at McKinsey and like, I mean, you know, obviously serving in the military is incredibly difficult and I will never, you know, imply otherwise, but it seems like with his academic pedigree in particular to then go into the military, I mean, I can't call it anything else other than calculated. Right. I mean, Pete, as uh George was saying a couple weeks ago um his you know he uh he was he's prepared himself for a type of politics yeah. that, that it just isn't popular anymore and I see something similar with Kamala and and in a way with Kamala it's more like unfortunate because like I think women have often had to run more to the 
to the center. Um, and, you know, I would imagine that there's even like a whole extra level of pressure for women of color, you know, sure. and like there's probably ways that Kamala thought that she had to, uh, you know, be harder on criminal justice because, you know, you see like even with like Ilhan and AOC and like Ayanna Presley, like the the criticism of like left women of color um in the media oh, yeah. you know is very like oh you know they're too urban they're anti-american and people are yeah. really 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 hard on them you know so like i'm yeah, not excusing kamala no, but, no, no, certainly but, but you see that she also prepared for a type of politics that like there's just no appetite for anymore well yeah and it's also like there is a, a kind of uh female politician of a certain age who has ha- who had to like exist in the boys club and be like perceived as quote-unquote tough and that informed their entire i mean i think hillary clinton falls into that camp i think nancy pelosi falls into that camp and they should have been better about it obviously and like <laughs> they should have risen above it but no um i can com- i completely agree um our reply guy of the week um one of our uh, again a, v- a very rare uh and unfortunate instance in which our reply guy of the week is a woman <laughs> it's a woman of color no less a woman of color no less unfortunately it is uh the ultimate guys girl nikki haley <laughs> yeah, just one of the guys and uh so nikki haley she's a former governor of south carolina she's the u.n ambassador or still no yeah, she, she's still the u.n ambassador yep yeah. um so she was recently being interviewed and she said um and we'll we'll play the we'll play the clip here but um she said that the confederate flag was about service sacrifice and heritage until dylan roof hijacked it oh dylan roof dylan roof yeah the very um, dylan roof who you may remember from, from a mass shooting of a church in south in carolina south carolina yep um, um of a black church a black church um and he he had a confederate flag and you know famously the confederate flag was apolitical before him yeah <laughs> it uh, meant and, nothing <laughs> yeah and uh, it's definitely not racist here is this guy that comes out with his manifesto holding the Confederate flag and had just hijacked everything that people thought of. And we don't have hateful people in South Carolina. There's always the small minority that's always going to be there. But, you know, people saw it as service and sacrifice and heritage. And but once he did that, there, w- there was no way to overcome it in service sacrifice and heritage like nikki haley is very smart she knows that this is completely garbage um does she i don't know because if she if she knew that racism was real would she be i can't say that but like (laughs) i mean it's like obviously to be what i will say is obviously to be in the republican party you really have to at minimum turn a blind eye to racism that's what i'm saying that's why i think it's like worse like she knows that what she's saying she is that's why i'm saying it's worse that she is willfully peddling this bullshit oh you think she's she's willfully peddling it yeah because you know because because those are her constituents are like racist and because she did take down the confederate flags from south carolina monuments and you know she probably got some pushback from many people in her party about that and so maybe this is a a a real-time situation where a woman uh has not has to but a, a woman is choosing to veer even further to the right mm-hmm. to uh allay fears that she is soft in some way yeah i mean and it's yeah it's the same sort of phenomenon where it's like most of the big time republican women are 
super hardliners because that's they're constantly being accused um from the right of being like too soft on certain things yeah and so to like as this weird like proving ground they're constantly like you have to be so craven to be a star in a, a female star in the Republican party. Yeah. <laughs> you have to be, you have to have sold your soul to the devil yeah, I a mean, long time ago. And I think that that's why, like, I mean, I don't know, you know, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna reveal my moral struggle with, uh, in real time here. Like I think all the time, cause like, I don't want to be like some brochalist that's just like, Oh yeah. You know, Kamala is a cop. Um, she, you know, she didn't, uh, this is people saying that about her isn't about racism or sexism or whatever because it's like you know, like obviously racism and sexism exist but like the extension of like oh you know like let's like anything that a woman does is feminist uh no or, oh no i mean, I, like, no, I mean that's garbage it's yeah, like I mean, and that like or i guess the extension of excusing terrible behavior because someone or because of a person's gender is like kellyanne conway or or racist yeah. gender, like nikki haley and it's like we don't want to do that like i don't think the goal <laughs> is to like excuse people for shit no 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 not at all but i w- i will go out and say that there is no there is no woman in politics who is not held to account for her actions in a way that is like and her words and deeds in a way that is like much more substantial. Yeah. No, I mean, and that's, and as it, I mean, in, in the case of someone like Nikki Haley and Kellyanne Conway and even Kamala, as it should be certainly, yeah. but it's like if Joe Biden were a woman, no, I, 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 <laughs> I guess I've decided what I want my own contribution to this discussion to be and like where I feel like as a, a good uh, use for my energies as a socialist feminist with a you know, complicated set of views. Uh, I think that the best I can do is uh, to uh, really put it out there in the world that Joe Biden is a piece of trash. Here we are. <laughs> and that he should not be the Democratic nominee. Here we are. All right. We're saying it. Uh, okay, we have an amazing interview for you this week. We are interviewing uh, Lauren Ashcraft, who is running for Congress in New York 12th District. She's a Democratic socialist and a comedian so so we st- i guess we stand we have to stand i mean like how uh, how could we not stand i mean even for identity politics reasons alone we would have to stand representation matters yeah. all right enjoy this interview bye hello and welcome back to reply guys we are here with lauren ashcraft who is running for congress in uh, New York's District 12. Welcome to Reply Guys, Lauren. Thank you. So excited to be here. We're so excited to have you. <laughs> we interviewed Shahid Buchar last week, and uh, I know that you two have endorsed each other. Is that right? Yes. I, we, I'm really excited to be doing this as kind of a coalition. So I am really proud to be part of the brand new Congress slate. But um, Shahid is also someone who really inspires me. And he's really, really going against Nancy Pelosi, which I think is pretty badass. Yeah, it's awesome. Um, I was thinking today about your run for Congress and also Shahid and thinking kind of about the broader question of why it's so important to elect people that are small donor backed. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to that. Yeah. So there's this question of accountability. So my incumbent, Carolyn Maloney, she is so out of touch 
with what the needs of her constituents are and the everyday issues faced by all of us. And whenever you look at who funds her and who has allowed her to still be in office after over a quarter century, then you'll see this time around, 51% of her funding comes from corporations, corporate PACs. So she is majority accountable to corporations and not us when 100% of my money comes from people. So I am accountable to people. Carolyn Maloney is accountable to corporations. And whenever we look at someone like Bloomberg, who's running as a self-funded presidential candidate, he is accountable to himself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. No, I, I absolutely do believe that uh, that Michael Bloomberg is running to advance the rights of Michael Bloomberg, uh, <laughs> which is um, extremely woke of him. Um, yeah, that's, you know, what we learn in the very like elementary version of what politics is or should be in this country is that, um, you know, in the idealistic view, it's like if you're running for office, hopefully your boss is your constituents. And so when, if someone has 51% of their funding coming from corporations, your boss are those corporations. And that's, inherently going to change the way that you legislate and um it's inherently going to make you uh, less inclined to represent the interests of the people in your district absolutely and so i'm running because i have this vision that every single person has equal and full representation and has a voice and that can't happen whenever you're being completely ignored for the needs of corporations and you are being prioritized less than profit. And so whenever I am running, I'm running for people. And one of the things that my campaign has really been prioritizing is focusing on who's been most oppressed in the last however long, however long Carolyn Maloney has been in office and hasn't paid attention to what everyday people are facing in the district. And we are spending a lot of time uh, speaking with people who have disabilities, mm. who can't use the subway because most of the subway stations are not accessible and don't have elevators, for example. I think it's something like only like 15% of them do. Yeah, it's it's a really, it it's, it's alarming that 52,000 people in New York's 12th district have disabilities and 52,000 people get ignored every single day by representatives. Mm -hmm. And uh, another group of people that we are really prioritizing is people who live within NYCHA uh, communities. What's and that? So it's our public, it's uh, our housing authority here in New York City, um, which there have been so many complaints recently and for the last however long of people living in extreme mold, people living with lead paint, children mm -hmm. living with lead paint, um, severe leaks that damage everyone's belongings, people that live without heat in winter. The list just goes on and on. And so right next to where I live in Long Island City is Queensbridge which is the largest public housing uh, complex community in the entire country. Mm -hmm. And I believe the Western Hemisphere, actually. 
So whenever we are walking around this community and speaking with people, first of all, I want to note that uh, we get invited in and people make us tea and we have long chats with them. And it's it's really amazing how they open up and um, trust trust us with their stories. And I want to make sure that we're taking those stories and advocating for them because their representatives have failed them and they have no reason to trust me. But um, that's exactly why we're fighting is we want them to be able to know if you contact me in the future, I'm going to listen. But whenever we have spent time in Queensbridge, one of the things that I've seen is mold. Yeah. And I had a severe allergic reaction whenever I was in somebody's apartment and they had black spots all over their walls. And another thing, just because I have mentioned that accessibility is a huge priority for my platform, um, people have dragged walkers up flights of stairs in front of me. And what we're finding out is that the elevators don't go to the top floor mm-hmm. and don't work most of the time. So if you're somebody that has a disability or you're a senior citizen or are injured and you live in the top floor, you're crawling upstairs. It's ridiculous. And that's happening in 2019. This is a 2020 campaign. There should be no reason that these people are going ignored on a daily basis, but they are. So my campaign is focused on finding everyone who's been completely ignored which actually, if I'm being honest, is everyone except corporations and billionaires. Yeah. Yeah. Finding everyone besides corporations and billionaires, which is easy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and making sure that we kind of go on a listening tour and listen to their concerns and make sure that we're advocating in the way that they've always deserved. Okay. Question that comes to mind. If you were elected, are you not worried about the oppression that corporations and billionaires are facing (laughs) (laughs) who who will be their voice oh michael bloomberg (laughs) (laughs) honestly they have they have strong enough voices um i think they do a pretty damn good job advocating for themselves and overrepresented i would say (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah, i uh compared to how hence our system yeah so you and I met each other because you, you're you actually a comedian, yeah? Am, yes. So we had to have a Democratic Socialist comedian on the podcast because, I mean, this is a Democratic Socialist comedian, comedian podcast. podcast. <laughs> That's true. We would, uh, yeah. We would be remiss if we did not have add another one. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm honored to be in your company. Thank you so much. Um, yeah. How did you go from comedy to wanting to run for office oh it it's been a journey so my comedy I've used as sort of a grassroots organizing I'm not I forget if you've been in the series collection box comedy I have not oh my gosh well whenever we reboot it you're so in (laughs) (laughs) but um so I I had started becoming a producer of free shows just so people could practice their craft and there was also as you are well aware kind of a me too movement within the new york city comedy scene yeah where a lot of producers and club owners were outed as complete 
creeps and rapists. And so I just started producing shows where I would basically guarantee that everyone would be safe and people could come enjoy a free show and everyone can practice their craft. And we had a show planned for after the 2016 general election. And it was called Bathing in the Tears of Racists. Um, it was the advertisement was a poster of Donald Trump crying and the tears dropped into a hot tub full of the comedians that were supposed to be performing that <laughs> night. And we didn't feel quite right holding that exact show in that way. Um, but the ticket, like it Did, was a full house. Yeah. And so we turned Was that in, the night, the night after? It was the weekend after. Okay. I had a show the night after and it was <laughs> the saddest. It was so upsetting. Awful. <laughs> I was on stage in Los Angeles when it was pretty clear that the Rust Belt was going to Trump. And yeah. I was like, do you guys want me to keep talking about uh, how I fuck skaters or should I address this? And people were like, skaters. <laughs> Everyone was so upset. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. The night after was, it felt like a funeral. It was bleak yeah go on yeah i i woke up that next morning like what the hell yeah i think we all did so we turned it into a fundraiser for planned parenthood and it made us feel maybe 0.02 percent better sure about life and so we felt like we were fighting back in some way we gathered like a few hundred dollars of people's pocket change and handed it to planned parenthood and then the next month we did the same thing for aclu and then we would just search for the next cause that we felt wasn't getting what it deserved and just kept doing that every single month and that was collection box comedy and how it was born it didn't have a name when it was supposed to be bathing in the tears of race (laughs) (laughs) so i have just gotten progressively angrier and through comedy we fundraised for the women's march and i really really liked the people that I worked with there and I became an organizer for it. And I just have become more and more involved in grassroots organizing in the community. And there came a point where I kept wishing that Carolyn Maloney would disavow corporate PAC money. Mm -hmm. And especially with the 2018 election where we saw someone get in with completely 100% grassroots fundraising. Um, that didn't have personal wealth and didn't have all these connections in the community that established politicians do. And I was like, Oh, you know what, Maloney, like you can, you can stop collecting all this money now and just be accountable to the people. And started seeing all that corporate pack money start trickling yeah. and it's yeah. like, here we go again. <laughs> yeah. It seems to be very hard for, uh, corporate democrats to say no to money yeah they love it it's, it's so crazy for them i love that um yeah. but that's actually that's i like the way that you phrase that that you just kept getting kind of increasingly angry and that i relate to that a lot and i think that that has had a lot to do with my own uh the trajectory of my of my personal politics like moving towards the left it's yeah. just the more um, and by I say further towards the left, I was already on the left, but just like except left when word. you were a teen. When I was a teen, Julia was a Republican. I was a Republican teen, teen um, but I was mostly just a contrarian. Yeah, I was a Republican teen, and it's uh, a dark chapter in my in my history. But yeah, the I I'm also involved in um, uh, DSA's housing working group, nice. and so I I think that's 
that in particular, the more I learn about the state of housing in New York City. Um, and that has that was like my very much my entrance into socialist politics was housing. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it is truly it's absolutely infuriating. The accessibility issue in the subway. I mean, I've seen people I've seen disabled people have to rely on a stranger carrying them upstairs. It's grotesque. It's just like this is the one of the wealthiest cities in America and there's no excuse for NYCHA's funding to continually be cut to the point that people are living without heat and without functional elevators, mold, while there are people who have, you know, second and third homes here, like billionaires who have second and third homes here who stay in them maybe two weeks a year or something like that. Yeah. So it is, it's really infuriating. And I think the more you learn, it's almost impossible not to just keep getting angrier about the gross injustices um, that are so on display here in New York. Yeah. And whenever you look at the 12th district in particular, it, it is the home of Donald Trump's penthouse. Mm -hmm. It's also the home of so many people that are dying on the streets because they're homeless. Um, And it's getting really cold and it it's astounding, just like you said, it's astounding to me that in such a rich district, in such a rich city, in such a rich country that we've allowed these problems to persist when we're throwing money at corporations as corporate welfare yeah. and we're throwing money at war. It just doesn't make any sense that we don't prioritize human life. I was thinking about that a lot today in the context of what is happening in ice concentration camps right now. Um, Just read the news that another child died because he had the flu um, and was not able to get any medical care and ice detention. Um, Obviously, I think this is horrible. And, you know, I've been seeing liberals and leftists alike tweet for the past couple of years. We need to get kids out of cages. And of course, I agree with that. But now it comes down to it. And it's like Nancy Pelosi and most corporate Democrats are not doing anything to get kids out of cages. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> I was wondering, one, why that is. And two, how you and other progressives would work together to do something about that situation in Congress. Yeah, absolutely. So this is the problem of why whenever we keep electing like one percenters, like elite people that seem totally disconnected and out of touch with humanity, it seems like they there's just not that connection that one would think about like empathizing with people being put in cages I don't know where that lack of empathy is like what the hell but um I actually with a few other uh congressional candidates recently went to an ICE detention center in New Jersey which um it it was not the same situation that we're seeing uh along the border however we still did see you know, somebody came up to us with a cup full of maggots that they got from uh, the sink. And we just saw a lot of defense being defensive from our tour guides. Mm-hmm. And um, I, 
I really don't have the words for the utter horror that we are not only allowing, but paying for. Mm -hmm. And the fact that 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 video you referenced of the child who was killed by ice, um, that video has about four hours that was cut out of it in which ICE is saying that they visited and checked on this child when I'm pretty sure that's not what happened given the fact that uh, I've unfortunately seen the video and the kid is laying there in the same position before and after the four hours were cut out of the the film. So there's a lot going on. It's I'm, I'm going to call it state-sanctioned terrorism and hate crimes and... We do have concentration camps right now. We are paying for them with our tax money. It's horrifying. It should absolutely, ICE should be abolished. And every single time that we sign bills that fund ICE, my my name would not go on any of those. Mm. It has to be given zero dollars because every time you give them any money, that's what they're doing with it is right. killing people. Why do you think that the vast majority of Democrats keep signing off on this. Um, I mean, they're not kind of like I kind of like this whole general movement is, is trying to push these people out of office. They're not accountable to people or humans. They're accountable to themselves. Uh, corporate Democrats are accountable to Nancy Pelosi. They're accountable to the DCCC. They're not accountable to us or to the Americans that have seeked asylum when they came into this country and are being put in cages and separated from their families. Hmm. So it's not a crime to seek asylum and we're treating them like less than humans for coming here and seeking a better life when pretty sure like any of us in this room, somewhere back in our ancestry, somebody came here fleeing something Mm -hmm. And we don't have that same kind of understanding for people that are coming from our southern border. And it's disgusting. It's xenophobic. It's racist. It's state-sanctioned hate crimes. Now, in your campaign video, uh, you talked about a lot about your own biography and your kind of the way in which a lot of the issues that you're running on intersect with your uh, your family's history. And I just wanted to know if you could speak a little bit about that. Yeah, thank you. Um, so my family, my grandparents in particular, are a lot of my influence for who I am and why I'm running. So on one side of my family, um, I am from an immigrant family. My grandmother's from Japan. And she met my grandfather when he was serving in the Air Force and they fell in love and had my dad in Japan. And then the family of three immigrated to West Virginia where my grandfather was originally from. And he became a coal miner to feed his family after he was finished in the service. And unfortunately, not that long after they immigrated, my grandfather was a victim of the 1968 Farmington mine disaster. Mm. And that, unfortunately, was one of the first times in United States history that somebody was like, oh, it's not safe to send people underground to get coal. 
What happened yeah. in the Farmington mine disaster for our listeners who might not be familiar? Yeah, so it was it this mine full of people exploded, and uh, people from miles away, like store owners. Um, if you go back and like read historical accounts, they felt like an earthquake. So all of these people just trying to provide for their families were sent underground into unsafe conditions that um, console. It was it was a console mine had been warned about so many times and nobody took any of the miners complaints seriously. And it was the first time that mining safety became a thing that people started thinking about. And it took I think it was 78 people that died that day. Um if you want to fact check it. <laughs> but I think it was 78 people that died that day including my grandfather. And that's what it took for people to be like, hmm, maybe we should think about workers' rights and in, in particular related to coal mining. So my grandmother found out on the news that that happened. Ugh. Nobody in the town mm. understood like what shook the ground that mm-hmm. day. And she was left a Japanese woman in the middle of West Virginia with small children to feed and no breadwinner anymore. Mm-hmm. And people didn't really like Japanese people in West Virginia at that time. So whenever I look at how we're treating people coming into this country, seeking a better life, it is very reminiscent of things that my family have gone through um, in terms of being othered and in terms of people just not understanding the struggles that you're going through and also escaping by coming here and seeking a better life and wanting to contribute to our society. And so my grandmother was left to feed her family with really small social security checks uh, from my grandfather's short work history. He was 31 when he died. Oh my I'm God. so sorry. Uh, well, I mean, it. whenever I am fighting for like workers and worker safety and uh, for people to be prioritized over profit, it. I feel like I am kind of doing him justice in a way because um, I, talk, I talk about this particular incident a lot and it's really unfortunate that it happened. Um, but I, I, Yeah, that can seem very like far away. Um, both in in time and location but i mean right here in new york we had the triangle shirtwaist factory yes. fire uh which is kind of a, a similar situation in which uh safety regulations were completely willfully ignored um just in the interest of maximizing profits and people died and that yeah workers were locked in the, in a burning building yeah <laughs> horrible the, the same thing happened in the mine. They had to actually seal it so that the fire would stop oh burning. Oh, my God. So it's, it's horrifying to grow up with those stories and to understand, like, someone in my family had to die in a, a horrific way for someone to pay attention to worker safety. Um, so whenever I am talking about worker safety, like, it's wholeheartedly, like, that's in the back of my mind and my whole family history. And on the other side of my family, my grandfather, um, he was a mechanic and he owned a trailer repair and sale shop that was in his yard. And we really enjoyed playing in these trailers as kids. I have really fond memories of just being part of that whole experience. And um, he was actually helping to 
to repair a building one day and fell in a way that his neck broke and he was paralyzed from the neck down. And uh, he, so just seeing that, that happen and seeing my family being the ones that became his caretakers, because it's really expensive to hire someone to 24-7 take care of your loved ones. So it was between my mom, my aunts, my grandmother, um, to really be the caretakers of my grandfather who had lost his mobility. And so I had experienced and just grown up with, yeah, of course our representatives are ignoring people Mm -hmm. like us. And uh, just realizing that there are so many places that people with disabilities are just completely locked out of in our society, such as the subway system or a lot of restaurants, a lot of businesses, some hospitals, some schools, which is surprising given the fact that uh, people with wheelchairs also need to access them. And it it's it's, you know, the Americans with Disabilities Act is 29 years old and we absolutely needed that. However, it does not enough. It does the minimum in that um, if you are somebody with a wheelchair or walker and can't get into a place that you and I can access very easily, you have to sue. Yeah. You have to find an attorney that will represent you and take that entity to court and get to court and sit in court. And that's your burden. And people like me, I don't necessarily walk around and uh, even necessarily realize all the places that I'm stepping up into. Mm -hmm. So I believe that the Americans with Disabilities Act needs to be expanded so that it's federally enforced and that it's no longer the burden of people with disabilities to be the ones that have to carry that entire burden. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense when you put it that way. It's crazy to think that there's no other enforcement of it other than people suing and you know it's the subway in particular i can't stop thinking about it is so egregious and we have the quote-unquote like accessoride program but that has so many issues um there are people basically how you know accessoride is for um, folks with disabilities uh, to kind of be taken from one place to another here in New York. But you have to, there are these like large windows of time that you have to, people have to be outside in the cold in the winter waiting. Um, there are so many problems with yeah, it. Yeah, isn't it like even like in a, like a couple hour period? Yeah, yeah like it's, I'll make it to dinner between like 4 and 7.30. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, but that was one of the things that when I first moved to New York was so apparent to me was how steep so many of the stairs are and how infrequently I saw escalators and elevators. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that the, the head of the MTA, uh, Andy Byford, who started a year or two ago, um, to his credit, he basically had a group of, of uh, disabled New Yorkers show him around essentially mm-hmm. And he really wants, allegedly really wants to change things. But Governor Cuomo, who uh, holds the purse strings in in a lot of these uh, situations, is um, shockingly just holding us back. Uh, Andrew Cuomo, once once again, really, talk about someone who is beholden to corporations. I... I'm not a fan. (laughs) It is crazy to me 
the state of the subway in general, not just the oh, sure. accessibility issues. I mean, so many New Yorkers depend on the subway to get everywhere. And it is horrible. Like, it's, yeah. you know, the trains are always broken. Um, I mean, they're going to maybe shut down. They were going to shut down the L train for a long time, which would like decimate business in Bushwick. Yeah. Yeah. So now, yeah. It's, yeah, now it runs on the weekends. It runs like once every 20 minutes. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, I know we have a lot of listeners that don't live in New York. And I guess just one thing I would say is that, you know, like New York has had this really great public transportation for a long time. And I feel like we are seeing that. Uh, evaporate from under our eyes like as it just gets worse and worse and worse and no one fixes it and I was wondering if you could give us some kind of insider overview into why none of our government officials seem to be taking any meaningful action towards the, repairing the subway and making it actually work for people I honestly like you're going to get so annoyed at me saying this, but a lot of them aren't regular people that even use the subway. They're just completely out of touch. So I I actually it would be amazing PR if like my incumbent used the subway once and had a picture of her doing so. But I can't find one. And I know like she has advocated for the Second Avenue line to be added to the Upper East Side, which is the wealthiest corner of my district and where a lot of her donors live and how convenient yeah <laughs> no what a but, coincidence i know yeah if you're gonna spend your time advocating for subway changes then why don't we fix it and also make sure that everyone in your district can use it yeah like one would think that that would be the priority but we're adding a second line to an already served part of your district that Manhattan trains run on weekends but Queens trains it's Queens and Brooklyn trains it's an adventure it's a real mixed bag yeah yeah yeah. it's seeing who historically like the the old guard of American politicians and if you you know go back throughout the his- throughout the history of American politicians, it often has been this very like wealthy upper echelon who get elected, and I it's totally contrary to what I would think people would want, which is someone who is going to represent their interests. But I just from talking to like people in my life and reading about the history, it's like people saw something like aspirational about these like hyper wealthy detached people. And as a result, we've gotten, we've had like decades and decades of, of policy in which um, the wealthy and corporate interests are heavily protected, but um, the average person's interests are not. And I think it's so encouraging to see that that tide is, is changing, um, especially with, you know, the 2018 midterm elections, there were just a lot of grassroots funded candidates. And honestly, what's most encouraging to me is that races that have gone uncontested for primaries that have gone uncontested for decades um, are now seeing primary challengers uh, like yourself. And, 
yeah. So you, I'm trying to think what my question is here. (laughs) I don't know if I have one. Um, but yeah, it's very cool to see that you, um, are running on these kind of kitchen table issues in a way that I, I just doubt that, uh, that your incumbent could even, could even speak to because I, I very highly doubt she uses the subway as I doubt that most of the people who make the laws in this state use the subway and you know our state government is in albany nobody up there uses our subway either cynthia nixon rode the subway she rode the subway i know that she uh we see you she tweeted out a picture of herself looking frustrated on the subway every day (laughs) yeah she took a picture of someone using a vote and ran the bag i think it was like last week and i was like yeah yeah she yeah she was you're welcome on the podcast anytime i love cynthia nixon we love you i know she's a she's a regular listener i'm sure (laughs) well it feels to me like i know that there's progressive races all over the country but it feels to me like um here i'm gonna rephrase i know that there have been progressive victories all over the country but it feels to me like new york is one of the most exciting places for politics right now because you have this very long-standing entrenched new york political machine that has been upended in Mm -hmm. a lot of ways uh alexandria ocasio-cortez probably being the most famous example but um there was a group of state senators called the idc that were democrats that always voted with republicans so they had like a pact to vote for with republicans so that that way like no progressive legislation uh in new york could really be passed and all uh, there were seven of them. Six were voted out. We just elected another socialist, Julia Salazar, to state Senate in 2018. I, there's probably examples that I'm missing, um, but it feels like New York in particular has been a very exciting place for progressive policies, politics in the past couple of years. Yeah, for sure. And I know, uh, I mean, we're all still mourning from the race with the Queen's DA. Yes. Um, Tiffany Caban, yes. who we've talked about on the show. Oh my gosh. And I, I, canvassed and was proud to get sun poisoning on her behalf. <laughs> um, no, we canvassed so hard and it was really an honor to be part of that whole thing, even given the results. But you're so right that we have this machine in New York, which makes it a jillion times more exciting every time that we swing a sledgehammer against this wall that represents everything that is keeping us back from being a truly progressive place. Yeah, because it can feel so insurmountable. Like the IDC was backed particularly by big real estate money. Yes. And real estate here feels so kind of undefeatable in in a lot of ways. And I I know this from, from working on different housing campaigns. And that's why, you know basically it's thanks to people like Julia Salazar and other progressives who we have, who have kind of unseated the IDC that we got eight out of the nine universal rent control bills passed uh, at the state level. And as a result, you've seen evictions go way down. And I think that one of the reasons why New York cities like New York and San Francisco perhaps are ripe for this kind of progressive political change is because they are home to the most extreme versions of poverty and wealth. Yes. Side by side with one another. You know, in in the case of Sam, obviously we have a huge uh, homelessness crisis here in New York um, alongside, you know, the 
the largest real estate transaction that's ever that's in in American history. Mm-hmm. Um, and San Francisco is is very much the the same in that way. Maybe even a little worse. It's definitely worse. Uh, no, certainly, and especially with all the new money pouring pouring in there. Um, but I think I think that is what is so exciting is because we know that there is more of us than there are of of them. Yeah. Um, and and I'm sure you you've encountered that in your own campaign. For sure, I know we. I think we have like 1,100 individual donors now, which is really cool. Just given the fact that our average donation is like twenty dollars, twenty one. Hell yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And what I'm seeing also is like we can see the demographics and the occupations of everyone that donates. And one of the most common occupations that people have that donate to my campaign is unemployed. And um, while I hate taking people's money when they're struggling to pay bills, it is really an honor to know that my campaign is is kind of hope mm-hmm. and that I'm fighting for the people. Yeah. And if I honestly got maxed out CEO donations and some corporate pack actually sent me a check, I would really need to look in the mirror and reexamine like who I'm reaching out to. First of all, I don't think any corporate pack would want to donate to me, but there's, there's a reason I haven't seen any of that come in and it's cause I am actually fighting against them. Yeah. One of the things that I've been thinking about a lot lately is the, is how underinformed many people are of how much Democrats are not on their side. And by mm-hmm. Democrats, I mean, corporate Democrats like Nancy Pelosi um, I think we see in the culture on cable news, like this idea that like, it's just, it's a battle between Democrats and Republicans and that Democrats are on the right side. And I feel like a lot of people are not very informed that their representatives may be voting in ways that are not aligned with their values or their interests or the things that would materially benefit their lives. And I was wondering how you see the what you see what you see are potential ways to raise awareness about the need for getting more progressives in office so i think before we had talked about our own personal and political journeys and i i grew up in western pennsylvania in a republican household <laughs> and i my first registration was democrat and i felt cool about it i felt like a rebel and then I eventually became like independent and third party and I've been on this weird political journey myself and then I studied abroad in in Germany and Sweden and that influenced my life a lot and I got sick over there and went to the doctor and didn't pay a cent because it was way too complicated for them to figure out how to bill me as an American and I will never forget I will never forget how simple going to the doctor there was as as compared to I have actually I don't have insurance right now. <laughs> Usually I have insurance and even with coverage I go to the doctor and it's really complicated. Yeah. So my life journey has been really affected by what I've been exposed to, 
where I've studied, my education, and then moving to New York and being part of this amazing mix of cultures. And New York is is undescribable in what it represents and what it is. And just like you mentioned, there are gajillionaires and also people just dying on the street, dying because they're rationing their medication that they can't afford. It's ridiculous. So, uh, I I, yeah, I also describe uh, moving to New York as the thing that like politically radicalized me yeah. because the um, the inequalities, the larger inequalities of American life are, at, I think, at their most visible in places like New York. Yes. Um, yeah, because it's one right up against the other. And mo- and like part of being in New York is figuring out how to pay your bills. And I have been employed in our financial sector where I became super radicalized. Yeah. <laughs> what radicalized you the most? Oh my gosh. Um, being part of companies that wanted management to buy into the corporate PACs, getting emails about donating to corporate PACs that give to both parties and that give to politicians that support everything that these companies do. Um, Being part of, so I worked at JP Morgan, which one of the things... Heard of it. (laughs) One of the things that made me the most angry is knowing that the CEO, Jamie Dimon, boasted about being able to increase profits by $3.7 billion because of the corporate tax cuts that Trump just handed out to everyone. Basically thanking Donald Trump, which, by the way, like... Fuck that. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, there's no there's no reason to thank him. I don't care who you're accountable to, like your stakeholders, like keep that zipped up. And knowing that that wealth, all of these $3.7 billion, that doesn't trickle down. No. That ended up being bonuses and stock buybacks and vacations and who who the hell knows what for the senior executives at the very top while um it's hit the news recently that jp morgan is cutting a lot of new york jobs which my district is employed about at a rate of about four fourteen point five percent in the financial industry so when you cut everyday financial sector people's jobs that's coming from my district a lot of the time and these people have families and they're figuring out how to pay their rent as well so what I want to do as part of my campaign is to expose the fact that these giant corporations a lot of people are forced to participate in capitalism to pay their bills because we live in this incredibly broken society and that wealth that we see and we think of at companies like JP Morgan, that's at the very top mm-hmm. of the company. And they're employing people at much lower salaries across the entire planet and cutting jobs in New York, which should be its headquarters. Right. 
And we like New York's 12th district is also the former future home of Amazon's second headquarters. And we're seeing that come back in the news because it's despite hunting yards. Yeah, now. yeah, exactly. Yeah. With no, with no state incentives, might I add? Yeah. yeah. Although I'm kind of bummed that they're coming here at all. Uh, yeah. yeah, of course. No, yeah. I mean, I w- literally want to snap Jeff Bezos's neck, but <laughs> he's so terrible. He's buying everything I love, like Phoebe Waller-Bridge and Whole Foods. Uh, I know. <laughs> we have some uh, listener questions for you. You Yay. have time for a couple listener yes. questions? Can I actually just pee really quick? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, I can ask Lauren listener questions while you're gone. Okay. Yay. And we'll cut this off. All right. So uh, would you close, would you vote to close Guantanamo Bay? Yes. What are your goals slash policy with reducing our military budget and getting troops out of the Middle East? We should have never been in so many conflicts in the Middle East in the first place. Um, Just for the record, Carolyn Maloney voted for the Iraq war. For example, uh, I don't think anyone who voted for that war should still be in office. That was a war for profit that ended up killing hundreds of thousands of people, innocent people. So we should have never been in a lot of these conflicts in the first place. So what we need to do right now is have exit plans to make our exit as sustainable for the local people as possible and get out and don't get involved in things that we have no strategy and plan for in the future. And I will never vote yes on a war unless we are being actively attacked by somebody in the future, which shouldn't happen if we build relationships and use diplomacy in the way that it should be used. Would you support universal basic income? I like the concept. I do not support Andrew Yang specifically in his proposal because I do not like the fact that people have to choose between their current federal assistance and universal basic income, which is $1,000, which won't pay your rent, by the way, in New York City. Absolutely not. Well, maybe if you live with many... Uh, many roommates. Although I, I live with many roommates and that would not pay my rent. So I don't know. Yeah. $1,000 is not not enough in New York City. If if you truly make it universal and don't make people choose between anything and the UBI, then of course I'd sign off on it. But until we are making sure that it's universal and helps the people that need it the most, I will not put my name on that. I'm not giving $1,000 a month to Jeff Bezos. Um, we're just talking about the Yang Gang and UBI. Yes, um, I I heard, and I am she ran back from the I bathroom. ran back from the bathroom too. Uh, yes, yeah, so I saw that question, uh, and it's from someone who has a uh, a blue hat uh, emoji in their in their Twitter name. So they are a member of the Yang Gang. They want math. <laughs> they want math, um, which I oppose. <laughs> no, um, I. I completely agree with you, and I've spoken at length about why Andrew Yang's uh, particular conception of UBI is faux progressivism. Yes, um, because it is not progressive to make someone choose between exi- between welfare and a thousand dollars a month, or food stamps and a thousand dollars a month, or what have you. And um, yeah, I really there's a lot of people who don't 
understand that that's what it is um, no they just think that we are really dumb for not wanting a thousand dollars a month <laughs> but then it goes back to like i feel like andrew young is just trying to buy people's votes by giving them a thousand dollars a month for the rest of however the hell long but whenever i was in a like this exactly this is why i'm against this particular policy is i was in a chat on twitter with um someone who was really really pushing hard for yang's proposal and somebody who lives off of disability which by the way is not livable right and whenever we're looking at social security in particular um, one of the facts that I like to point out is that there is an income contribution cap of $133,000 per year in which if you make above that amount, your contributions stop at that $133,000. Right. And everyone who makes below that amount, like myself, pays uh, a percentage of your income on your entire income. So people like Jeff Bezos drop a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a penny into a bucket, and that's his contribution because he's a billionaire. Mm -hmm. But people like, like all of us in this room and working people that are struggling to pay rent and don't have health insurance and are struggling to pay their bills, we're paying a lot. So I want to make sure that everyone's paying their fair share. And whenever we're talking about the fact that uh, social security and disability is not livable, but oh, you don't have the resources. Yes, we do. Yeah. yeah. Tax people what they should be taxed. Exactly. And yeah, I mean, Andrew Yang's uh, UBI proposal is absolutely, it's the libertarian Koch brothers backed um, conception of universal basic income. Uh, thank you so much. Um, <laughs> no, there was, I mean, this is where the, there is a strain on the, the left and the right. Um, and by the left, I mean like people who are, you know, kind of tech bros who are socially liberal, um, people like Andrew Yang, probably, I don't know, but he, w he always talks about how like his wife is a stay at home mom and she, and you know, society doesn't value her work and she should get a thousand, like she should, she should get, she's the reason why we should have UBI. I'm like, Oh, you think that you think that, child rearing is worth twelve thousand dollars a year thank you so much andrew yeah <laughs> like, Th yeah thank you so much yeah. it's so generous so of nice of you and also yeah i mean a thousand dollars a month to someone who's already extremely rich they're just gonna what are they, like they're just gonna put it into some investment whereas a thousand like, golfing for yeah a day. come on but the like this particular chat room this uh freedom dividend supporter was talking to someone who lives off of $700 of disability a month. That's what they get to live off of, which is nothing. not enough. And, uh, they just couldn't understand. They're like, why don't you support UBI? Why don't you support UBI? You'd get $1,700 a month. And they're like, you think that's fucking livable? Also, you, you wouldn't because yeah. he's already on disability. It's literally, I have screenshotted Andrew Yang's website where he explains the freedom dividend and people still don't believe it. Yeah. It's like, this is from his campaign website. He's <laughs> saying, and he prefaces it with saying, we already spend so much on welfare and food. It's like, fuck off. We no, spend we a lot on war. Yeah, absolutely. We have a $750 billion a year military budget. I think we can spare some extra, like a rounding error of our military budget. And, you know, throw more money at food stamps and welfare a thousand dollars a month does not fix anyone's problems no so instead of throwing a thousand dollars a month to buy people's votes at people 
how about you fix the problems with something like a federal jobs guarantee or increasing minimum wage, which I am for increasing minimum wage to not a one size fits all minimum wage. But for example, New York and San Francisco, we have different costs of living than like Iowa, for example. So minimum wage should be matched to what's actual live, actually livable in each locality and also tied to inflation. I absolutely agree with you. Um, so Peter Dow is uh, an advisor to your campaign. And I, uh, I think a lot of our listeners probably know who Peter Dow is. <laughs> um, talk about someone who's had an interesting political journey and political trajectory. Um, I really have been loving his Twitter lately. He's um, King. King, King, woke King Peter Dow. Uh, <laughs> we we're so sorry. We he was supposed to call in, but uh, but he had a conflict. Hopefully so. some other time. Hopefully some other time. Um, I've been I've really been loving a lot of what he's uh, he's been saying on Twitter and in in different statements recently. So I just wanted to know. Uh, and for those of you who who don't know who Peter Dow is, he was um, an advisor to Hillary Clinton's campaign in 2016, and he has since been on a uh, a leftward journey and. Kate, we love to see it. Um, yeah, I think I became extremely into Bernie Sanders the same month that he became extremely into <laughs> Bernie Sanders. We're just, we've been on the journey together. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, so um, my question is, how did you and Peter Dow connect? Um, we had fall. I don't know who followed who first, but I had been fangirling at his stuff for a while. And <laughs> I had noticed he's he'd liked my stuff and also his amazing wife, Leela, who I'm also a fan of. So I just wrote a DM one day saying, um, thank you so much for like supporting my campaign. And we had a nice long chat in person thereafter and uh, ended up really meshing. I love watching their journey. And like as someone who's made a journey myself and I'm fully on like Team Bernie right now, what we can't do is is hold someone we can't be like oh in like 2004 I noticed you were like a little bit less left than you are now and like hold that against someone for the rest of their lives we need all hands on deck absolutely yeah and also all the time yeah a lot of terrible things are happening the correct and I think rational reaction to it would be to look at some of the things that are happening and say, well, it doesn't seem like the status quo is currently working. Yeah. Let's try something else. Totally. And I don't, I, to me, the mentality that like, if you once thought a thing that you're not allowed to ever change your mind, even based on the very extreme events that are happening in front of you, that's, it's so silly. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I mean, just thinking about the fact that I, uh, I'm from Western Pennsylvania and like went to West Virginia University and my world, like I've been in such different worlds my entire life and we've all been through journeys. But what we need right now is this entire country to come together and get this lunatic out of office. Absolutely. And save the planet. Yeah. Kind of a big deal. Kind of a big deal. Well, we absolutely agree. And I think our listeners are really going to enjoy this conversation. Where can people find you and your campaign? So I am at laurenashcraft.com. And also you can follow me on all the social medias at Vote Ashcraft, which is A-S-H-C-R-A-F-T, which is always very confusing. <laughs> Not related to John Ashcroft. 
<laughs> that, good different name yeah. thank god yeah. <laughs> all right well lauren thank you so much for joining us uh we wish you the best with your campaign and i uh, i can't vote for you because i don't live in your district but you rule thanks for coming thank on the show you. you guys rule too thank you when you win please come back <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah thank you love it Thank you so much for listening to Reply, guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find us. Uh, the show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Clare. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Fremgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's. And I'm at OJuliaTweets, O-H julia tweets and twitter is where you can also find our reply guys they are always with us bernie take us out as i went walking that ribbon of highway i saw above me that endless skyway I saw below me that golden valley. This land was made for you and me. This land is your land.